It might be confusing because there are more jobs considered essential than you may have thought. Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody questions things. Why? People are too fat and happy. People are way too prosperous for their own good. Hi, everybody. So I want to take a moment to talk about Liberty Dad. I also happen to call him a lightweight, okay? And I have said that, so I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. It is not enough to talk about liberty. One must believe in it. It is not enough to believe in liberty. One must work at it. It is not enough to work at liberty. One must convince others, likewise. Reimagining how we do politics. Welcome to Liberty Dad. Welcome to episode 19 of Liberty Dad Podcast, where we reimagine how we do politics by believing, working, and convincing others to work at liberty. I'm your host, DL, and today's episode is Coronavirus, Every Job is Essential. During this episode, I will tackle the issue of essential and non-essential work and my thoughts on government-imposed limitations. Are you tired of coronavirus yet? I sure am, and I don't mean the obvious reasons of health safety, and disruption to our daily life. Just keeping up with the news and updates is exhausting. I had a long list of show ideas lined up, and I debated whether I should continue with that list or shift to the news of, well, of the year. But as I observed the social media sphere, I realized there was a lot worth discussing. For now, episodes will still be about liberty, but in the context of the coronavirus. Let's dive right in. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm discussing essential work versus non-essential work. Here's what I've been saying in summary. If someone provides a good or service that another is willing to pay for, they are an essential worker. These activities provide income to pay for other services like rent and food. And you know what? As it turns out, people don't take kindly to those words. Here's what one person said in response online. That's not needs, therefore not essential. If you think money is more important than lives, I have nothing further to discuss with you. Did you hear the problem in that response? It's in this key phrase. If you think money is more important than lives. But here is the problem. I don't think money is more important than lives. And further, I think this response sidesteps a real concern. Our economy isn't composed of essential work and non-essential work. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what an economy really is. It's simply a collection of transactions made between people, real people, every day. When people say something like, shut down, save lives, and deal with the impact to the economy later, what someone like me hears is, shut down, save lives, and deal with the impact to people later. To help illustrate, I've reimagined an essay written in 1958 by Leonard Reed titled, I Pencil. The original essay is a first-person account of the creation of a pencil from the pencil's perspective. I'll have the links to the actual essay in the show notes. My reimagined story is shorter, and it focuses on essential and non-essential work. I make no claim that it is any better than the original, so I really encourage you to make sure you seek it out and read it. But I hope my rendition serves to illustrate work that provides goods and services is essential. The title is We Essential. Here we go. 
Many jokes start by identifying three types of people and how they came to be in a given place. The joke places some stereotype on each person and then proceeds to create a punchline with their response to an experience that all of them are presently sharing. Imagine instead a restaurant server, a manicurist, and a police officer sit down to discuss what it means to be classified as either essential or a non-essential worker. That discussion may go something like this. You know it's my job to keep order, says officer. It only makes sense that I am considered essential. You both work hard, but the services you provide just aren't essential to the public. They're basically luxuries. It doesn't feel luxurious, server said, looking at manicurist who nods with approval. I think manicurist would agree. Our services have equal value. How so? says officer. Because you're judging the value of your service by how you feel about it, not how those who receive it feel, said manicurist. Sitting up straight, officer says, maybe so. But I'm also looking at it from the basic needs of society. Society needs law and order to keep from falling apart. Server cocks her head and asks, so society doesn't need to eat? Of course they do. What they don't need is someone else preparing it for them in a public place. The grocery store is full of food. Some of it is partially prepared, some of it fully, and some of it is fresh and requires cooking. But everyone has a refrigerator, stove, and utensils to cook with. What about time? Asked Manicurist. It takes time to plan meals, make a grocery list, drive to the store, pick up groceries, come home, cook, and then clean. For those who already have a schedule, the disruption adds to the challenge. And imagine what it's like for those who don't cook very often. When you're not good at something, it does take longer. Before officer could speak, server asked, Does your wife cook? Why, yes, she does. She's a great cook. And on top of that, she has a side business as well. Well, I don't have a spouse to cook for me, says server. After a long day of work, I have to do all of what manicure says. Or I can go to a restaurant where someone like me will prepare my meal. I do both, actually. Sometimes I get food to go. Sometimes I enjoy sitting in the restaurant and having someone wait on me. It's one of the ways I decompress from the stress of my day. Manicurist shifts in her seat. See what I mean? She asks. You are looking at server's role from your perspective, not hers. It's not just about food. It provides her time to decompress from a long day. That's a positive gain for mental health. Okay, I'll give you that one. But there are times when people have to think about come. Whoa, 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 interrupts Manicurist. You aren't listening. You keep saying community. But the community is not its own entity. It's just people. And the people that make up a community are individuals, each with their own needs and desires. You don't interact with the community. You interact with individuals. Like me and Server, you'll never interact with most of the people in the community. And also like us, when an individual has a positive experience with you, then you have provided an essential service to that one person. Taking a deep breath, officer pauses and then says, essential and non-essential is just defining which work must continue and which work can be paused during a crisis. I get what you're saying about interactions. P individuals don't require a nail salon to survive, but they do require groceries. But those products require many other products and people for their existence, said Server. 
You might think people don't need nail polish to survive, and in the most strict sense, people don't. But each week, the nail salon purchases many different products from various suppliers, and those suppliers have many employees who work to get the various supplies to those stores. And, Manicurist chimes in, you may not be aware, but the nail salon industry is a $5 billion industry. Think about it this way. You cannot stop $5 billion from circulating in our economy with no negative impact. And the list of non-essential work covers many other industries like gyms, nail and beauty salons, barbershops, sporting venues, and quite a few more. Do you realize how much money has stopped circulating? Ha! Officer says as he jumps to his feet. That's what people have been trying to say. You're putting money over people. Not so fast, said Manicurist. Remember, the community is made up of people. The economy is made up of the trades that people make between each other. And money? Money is just a tool to help facilitate those trades. Even if it were just about money, that money is used to buy those designated essential services. I cannot buy groceries if I don't have money, and I don't have money unless I have something to trade with someone else. Server trades taking and delivering orders, while I trade manicures. Officer looks down, thinks, and after a few moments, he lifts his head and says, I guess you have a point. All work is really essential. It really is. We essential. I hope you enjoyed that short story and got something out of it. The point was not to necessarily address all of the talking points for delineating between essential and non-essential work. It was to get you to think about the value of so-called non-essential and think about it regarding the person that's doing it and the recipients of it and also to our economy. There is a value between the participants that a third party cannot determine. That's because a third party has no idea how that trade affects a future individual. Have you heard of one red paperclip? A man years ago started with a single red paperclip. He traded that paperclip for a pen, which he then traded for a doorknob. This continued until he made a total of 14 trades within a single year, and his final trade, a two-story home. Think about that. He started with a red paperclip and traded his way to a two-story home in just 14 transactions. Will everyone do that? No, of course not. And that is far from the point. Each person traded because they felt better off having made the trade than they would have by not making the trade. The person with the pen preferred to have the paperclip while the man preferred to have the pen. But then he found someone who would rather have his pen than they would their doorknob. And this continued on until he found somebody that was willing to trade a house. Likewise, I might prefer to have a meal cooked and brought to me than my cash. The person serving me obviously prefers to have my cash more than they would to have the time that they're spending bringing that meal to me. But like the paperclip story, it doesn't stop there. The server now has cash to trade for something else. And I, I have time that I've saved from planning, shopping, cooking, and cleaning to do something else. And that is just two people. Imagine all of the servers and all of the patrons that sit down to eat 
consider all the different reasons for trading and the potential trades made possible after just a single meal. The impact to the economy far exceeds just the calculated number for that line of work. In my story, Manicurist points out that nail salons represent $5 billion annually. That only counts the money directly in that industry, the money that's exchanged between the customer and the manicurist. But that leaves out where the money goes beyond that. That is why all work is essential. It provides value to each person making the trade and it facilitates future trades. And it boils down to what each individual values at the time of the trade. So it's much more than just money. Now, with that out of the way, if one accepts that all work is essential and we agree that the coronavirus does need addressed, now I'm on the hook for an alternative course of action. It's never good to be the person who shuts the conversation down but doesn't consider a solution that meets the need and fits within the current environment. The question then becomes, Liberty Dad, how should the government have responded to the coronavirus pandemic? With the government we have and the laws that currently exist, the government could have and should have done these four things. One, provide accurate information. Two, offer tax incentives. Three, remove regulations. And then four, coordinate internationally. Let's take a quick look at each one of these. First, provide accurate information. This means telling the public what they know and what they don't know. Recommendations in absence of what is known, those are fine. Bringing out relevant experts, that's great. But the number one priority for the government is to ensure citizens have the most accurate information. It assists us in making decisions now, good decisions, and assist us later when we need to make them because we'll have that continued trust in what we're being told. And there are quite a few people out there that do not feel the government was forthright in what they knew and what they didn't know. Second, offer tax incentives. This is where those recommendations turn into action. People seem to think the government can only motivate people through force. That is, regulations, executive orders, and so forth. But that is far from true. Currently, it's tax season, even if taxes have been deferred. And you know what virtually everyone is doing? They're looking for ways to reduce their tax burden. And it doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich. You're, everyone is trying to take advantage of tax breaks whatever tax breaks are available to them. If we want companies to move their workforce to being more remote, say working from home, offer them a tax incentive. Tell companies, if you, for every employee that you have working from home, we'll give you this percentage or this much in tax reduction. Companies move to different states and even different countries to take advantage of tax breaks. If we want people to frequent bars, movie theaters, and other public places in smaller numbers, increase the taxes. Or, if you hate that idea, like I do, offer those companies tax incentives to implement social distancing measures. Third, remove regulations. Now this one, this one actually did happen. There is a list on the internet 
and I'll post it in the show notes, of over 200 regulations that local and state governments and the federal government waived in order to help Americans and American companies tackle the coronavirus problem. Now, I would argue that most, if not all, of these regulations were not nearly as needed as people believe, but they're there, and they were suspended, and they are helping. And then lastly, coordinate internationally. Other countries may have supplies or even processes that are useful. Ultimately, it's a matter of helping facilitate resources from where they are to where they are most needed. On an international level, the federal government is currently the most well-positioned to facilitate this. Now, keep in mind, many companies, they didn't require regulations to send their workers home. Many people did not require regulations to engage in social, social distancing. Many major companies made the decision to shift workers to remote long before the stay-at-home orders were enacted. And other companies that did remain open, many of them adjusted their operations to facilitate social distancing. For instance, Publix, the grocery store by my house, they have recently installed plastic barriers in front of the cashiers. Their aisles are now one way, and there is tape marking six-foot distances for people to wait in line in accordance with the recommendations. With the exception of mandatory closings, most of what we've seen are things that citizens and businesses did on their own accord. Now, what about beaches and state parks and other public venues? Do they need closed? I would argue no, they don't. At best, you can have an officer patrol those areas and further inform people to keep their distance. If you must, you can limit the number of people coming in at a given time where it's possible. In fact, a local grocery store here did the very same thing. The point that I'm making is that there are many options for incentivizing people. Executive orders and mandatory closings are heavy-handed, but little old me came up with some of these ideas all by myself. So shouldn't a government be able to connect a bunch of really smart people to sit down and find even more ways to incentivize people? Ways that don't involve mandatory shutdowns of businesses? And let me point out, when government tells a business to shut down, it's effectively telling a business and its employees they not only must bear the burden, but they don't have any opportunity to adapt. Think about that for a moment. Millions of Americans have paid thousands of dollars in taxes, and the best they got from their government in return was to be told, stay home or you'll be punished. America should demand better, and it's up to citizens to demand it. Demand it from the local level, the state level, all the way up to the federal level. Americans are really quite resourceful. People are quite resourceful, and they are far better off when barriers are removed than they are when forced to lose their income and then tossed a one-time meager check for their trouble. Which is a great segue into the bill review portion. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. I am not in any way a lawyer. What follows is not in any way legal advice and is not intended to speak in any authority on legal matters. I am only acting in the capacity of a general citizen with the ability to read and interpret a concatenation of words and render an opinion. During this episode, let's review the CARES Act version 1 and 2, along with the Take Responsibility for Workers and Families Act. 
These were different relief bills that found their way to Congress a few weeks ago. The CARES Act, which is short for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, was recently passed and signed by the president. And that's the one where the $1,200 checks that we hear about in the news is coming from. These bills were pretty lengthy, with a combined 2,500 plus pages. Reviewing the bills in the standard way that I do would take up way too much time. And it would be pretty boring on top of that. Instead, let's talk about something different. Let's talk about metadata. Metadata is basically information about other data, but it excludes the content. This type of information can tell us things that the content does not. For example, if I send you a text message, the metadata would be things like the size of the message or the time that I sent it. If I sent the text message at, say, 6 a.m., the time tells someone else that I was awake at 6 a.m. in order to send that message. If I send a text message every day at 6 a.m., then we can determine that I wake up daily before 6 a.m. And we can also determine that you are someone I contact frequently, as opposed to someone else who I might only text once per month. So we can kind of get the, the idea that you and I are much closer than me and somebody else. So you can start establishing degrees of relationship. Knowing that, in regards to the bills, we can take some other known information and use it to draw some conclusions. Keep these numbers in the back of your mind, but the average typing speed is 40 words per minute. And the average reading speed is 250 words per minute. The first version of the CARES Act, the Republican bill, if you will, was 247 pages long. And it consisted of over 45,000 words. Based on the average reading and writing speed, it would take one person three hours to read the bill and almost 19 hours to write it. Now take the Take Responsibility for Workers and Families Act. That would be the what they call Democrat response to the CARES Act. It was over 1,400 pages long and consisted of more than 270,000 words. Now again, using the average reading and writing speed, it would take one person 18 hours to read, four days, and 16 hours to write. Both of those bills failed, and a second version of the CARES Act ultimately is what passed. This bill was 880 pages long and would take one person 11 hours to read and two hours, two days, 22 hours, and 49 minutes to, read, to write. To read all three bills would take 32 hours. To type up all three would take about 202 hours or just under nine days. Okay, that's a lot of numbers I just threw at you. So let me give you the bottom line. To read all three bills would take you 32 hours. To type up all three would be about nine days. But the math only works if we're talking about reading and writing straight through. No breaks. No way someone is doing that. Why does that matter? The original CARES Act was introduced on March 19th, and the second version was signed on March 27th, only nine days later. Wait a minute. To read and write all three takes about 11 days. And that's, again, excluding any breaks and also excludes any discussion on the matter and assumes that whoever is writing it 
knows exactly what they want to write from beginning to end. That includes research as well, because the bills often refer to other legislative bills. Think about that. Congress signed a $2 trillion bill, and they did so, they decided to do so in less time than it takes an average person to read and write the bills. Now, my math-savvy listeners might point out the original CARES Act was introduced on the 19th of March, which means it was most likely already written before the dates that I used. And that math-savvy listener would also point out that the second CARES Act was a modified version of the first, so it wasn't written from scratch. And you would be correct on both accounts. The point of this exercise is not to assert definitive timelines. Rather, it's to help illustrate that our Congress spent $2 trillion that it didn't have, and they did so in one of likely two ways. One, they had existing bills or portions of these bills sitting around to cut and paste when the time was right. Or two, they did create the bills fresh, you know, from scratch, but in a timeline that does not provide for proper discussion regarding what should and should not be a part of the bill. In either case, that isn't responding to the needs of the people at hand. We need to hold our Congress accountable and demand that when they do present a bill, it's timely, it fits the need of the moment, and they've done their due diligence with reviewing it. Anything less is cheating the American people. That's all I have for this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to find me on Facebook at Liberty Dad and on Twitter at DL underscore Liberty Dad. And remember, if you're a champion of liberty, your business is people and your product is liberty. Have a great week. Catch you next time. And I'm out.